The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's episode, Trident Room hosts Mike Morris and Brian Parrio sit down and have a drink with co-author of the ISIS reader, Craig Whiteside. This episode was recorded the 19th of August, 2020. So uh, uh, today we welcome to the Trident Room Dr. Craig Whiteside, assistant professor at the Naval War College right here at NPS. Correct. Um, also a senior associate at the War College Center on Irregular Warfare and Armed Groups and a fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism, uh, which is part of the Higgs and George Washington University's program for extremism. Right. Is that right? Yeah, they're two different institutions, but yeah, same right. same job at each. Yeah. Well, welcome, Dr. Whiteside. Thank I can you. call you that. I can call you Craig. What are we going with today? Craig. I prefer Craig. You prefer Craig. Yep. Retired uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel. That's right. Right. Yep. But uh, enough tours that you're like, man, just I've, I've I'm done with that sir stuff. Done with those formal, formal yeah. titles. A could you bit. could you do this for every class that I have because I have this problem in my class where people just come. I've got this uh, not to Colorado. I won't, you know, no, I don't. Not too many people know where I live, but I have a new neighbor, a new NP. Uh, NPS uh, um, uh, works here, uh, two houses down, enlisted, and as soon as she found out, oh, it's Elser and all this, I was like, we're neighbors. Yeah. You don't, we're not a student. We don't know me otherwise. My name is Mike. Thank you. Right. <laughs> was like, Has that worked, though? Uh, we'll see if it holds. Okay, we'll good. Okay. And, uh, it re- you know, I tell my students that, too. Like, first of all, not in the Army. Second of all, I'm a, I'm a true civilian. I have a PhD. I'm a doctor. You, can, you could call me Dr. Whiteside if you really have to you know, do the respect thing. Uh, but it doesn't matter. They still call me sir, 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 sir. sir. It's, it's, like, gonna, it's, always oh. gonna, it's always going to come out. The other, the other person that we're welcoming today uh, on his first interview, we'll see if this is the first one of his that airs. I think it will be, is uh, uh, Brian uh, Pajarillo, which is how I'm going to say it. He'll say his name differently. <laughs> I've learned, um, you know, a little, a little F you to the Spanish and there are times in the Philippines, <laughs> it sounds like, uh, which I've, I guess I'm just not culturally aware enough, so I, I, I give it the, the incorrect, correct pronunciation, Pajarillo. Hello. <laughs> oh, thanks, Brian. That's a really good introduction for yourself. I appreciate it. Everyone listening to this podcast is really going to get to know you from that, <laughs> uh, no doubt. Um, so, Craig, uh, you're here in uh, beautiful, sunny, smoky Monterey <laughs> Peninsula. Very smoky. And, yeah, very smoky right now. I was looking at the EPA maps, and absolutely, uh, it's all... All the smoke from like all the surrounding fires is just like getting blown like right here. Like yeah. we're like this dark purple on the map, just this peninsula. And it's just really terrible outside right now. So we're inside. We're in the Trident Room. We've got some Southside cocktails. You told me to surprise you. Uh, you've got some some gin, some lemon juice, and mint. A little bit of simple indigo gin. Rice. Indigo gin at that. That's right. So um, we're getting fancy little, today. Little fancy. What, what is your background, Craig? How did you come to NPS? So how I ended up here was random, completely random. Uh, they just happened to be looking for someone who had a little bit of military experience and also had the academic uh, credentials to eventually teach here. They, I was hired uh, conditionally. So if I didn't finish my PhD, <laughs> I would be have moved on the road. So that was another motivating factor. I came here ABD 
and I finished my uh, dissertation working late nights here at NPS while I was teaching um, on on the Islamic State, and uh, that's um, and I was lucky enough to f you know finish, but again motivated reasoning. Yeah, that's definitely one of the topics we'll get into because uh, uh, something I haven't mentioned so far is your co-author of a new book published in February, if I'm not mistaken, the ISIS Reader, which is a catalog history through the ISIS's own publications, words, mm -hmm. recordings. Of, of their history from the early 90s up through today. Um, because I think, you know, one of the things we'll talk about is, you know, ISIS isn't totally gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we'll talk about that too in a little bit. But, sure. um, yep. uh, so you've been here on the peninsula for a little while. Yep, seven uh, years. Enjoying life, uh, married with kids. How many kids do you have? I have four kids. Four I've, kids. Uh, yep, I have one works up in San Francisco. She's 23. She graduated from Stanford uh, grad school and she just, uh, UCLA originally. Uh, but all since she's been here, all since we moved here to California and, and MPS, and then I've got one who just graduated from the USC Trojans. She's going to be an Army officer, an aviator. Uh, she's going to flight school here in another couple of weeks. Do you uh, know what she wants to fly? Uh, Blackhawks, she was thinking. Oh, that's, that's what I always wanted to fly. Yeah. Okay. So I'll have to say hi. Yep, so she's she's going to be a, a Blackhawk pilot, hopefully. And then I've uh, got a, a recent high school graduate who's going to go to UC Berkeley. Uh, well, he's not going anywhere, unfortunately, because <laughs> he's going to stay not in my yet. basement <laughs> and take All classes. <laughs> I was hoping he was going to go to UC Berkeley, but uh, he's just going to take online classes there uh, because they will not be uh, doing resident education this semester, uh, unfortunately. And, uh, and then I have a eight-year-old who's just started third grade this week, and he is uh, already on online classes, and I'm feeling for him right now. Oh, yeah. Um, so... With family and uh, everybody staying at home, and you're teaching at home too, like, is there anything that you miss about uh, about the the life before COVID? You know, I not to be super dorky, but I miss teaching in, in in class. I don't I don't think it's a surprise to most people that that's a pretty effective and efficient way of education, uh, particularly at the graduate level. I think can see lots of ways that online works well, but I miss teaching in the classroom. Uh, it's one of the things that inspired me to be in education post-military life was I like teaching in the military. I, I did RTC. I taught, um, you know, military science. And so, I, you know, the one thing when I got out, I had no idea what I wanted to do. But I said, you know, I like education. I'd like to be an educator. Um, yeah. And so I do really enjoy the classroom. And I miss that student-to-student conversation. Not that the online experience is bad for me. And not that I don't enjoy it and, 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 you know, feel pretty passionate about doing that online. I, at the same time, it's just, it's just not the same. I'm going to guess, just based on my experience, that you're having a lot less participation than you're used to, uh, perhaps, in the online. You know, military officers are not hesitant. They're not shy. They're not wallflowers. So, you know, if you ask the right questions... You can get them to talk. You'll get some responses. Yeah, I don't. That's I have fair. not. That has not been one of my problems. Um, it's hard to read your audience. It's it's much harder for a professor, like when you're looking at the the Brady Bunch people on the screen and trying to like I can't read. I don't have these you know subconscious clues on. Are they getting it? Do they understand the reference? If I say Munich moment, and uh, yeah, they're like, well. I don't, so those, that makes it so much harder. So it, it is quite more difficult, quite a bit more difficult, but uh, the conversation, I think, you know, grad school is grad school. If you ask the right questions, you're going to get heated conversations <laughs> and debates about U.S. national foreign policy. What should it be post COVID during COVID, you know, 
great so part of competition. With teaching then uh, these online students at the War College here at MPS, uh, do you find that there's any synergy, cross flow? Do you have a, uh, much benefit from, from being here in particular? Do you see that any of the research supports um, either school? A absolutely. Um, you know, one, uh, the defense analysis program, with the particularly with the special operations, uh, for for me, teaching national security, what's the role of, let's say, you know, ISIS? What's the role of ISIS and how important is it in our national security when we're facing great power competition, et cetera? These kind of questions are, are still very pertinent to our students. Um, had quite a few students here at MPS working on theses that are uh, ISIS related. I don't think that will stop. So there's a lot of synergy there. And then uh, you mentioned our book, The ISIS Reader. Um, the origins of that book are in this room, the Trident Room, believe it or not. I met my co-author, Herrero Ingram, who was a, a guest professor here See at... See everybody? Yeah. Yeah. The Trident Room. The Trident Room, the center of the universe. <laughs> not now. <laughs> it's empty, but unfortunately. Uh, but I met Herrero Ingram in this room, and uh, he was a visiting professor from Australia. The DA department had him in to talk about information operations, right, which is a, a topic that covers, you know, from great power competition all the way to you know, who he and I consider to be quite exceptional operational, you know, students of information operations, the Islamic State. And, uh, you know, we kind of started uh, a relationship here that, that has gone through this book, but will probably be lifelong. I mean, we're, we're, we're better friends than we are academic kind of partners uh, with our other co-author, Charlie Winter. What are, oh, uh, so much of your study and effort goes towards um, ISIS, and we've mentioned them a lot already. What are some of the experiences that you've had that have driven you to devote so much time and academic effort to studying ISIS? Yeah, I think, you know, there's, you know, academic study, or they get involved in their topics for a lot of reasons, some accidental, probably some very purposeful for, for me, it was uh, it was personal, and that can be an inspiration for academic study. It doesn't have to be. Uh, for me, I uh, was a army officer in Iraq in 2007. That's the first year, 2006 and seven. I probably showed up the exact time that they declared the Islamic State of Iraq in October 06. And sometime during that tour, uh, having as an infantry officer, I had to deal with this group and their terrorism tactics, and, and but really pretty fascinated with their strategy at the time. And um, I was there about the time where they were, you know, suffered their first defeat. It was a defeat, it was pretty, and that's what they call it. And um, I, I was, you know, really taken with that. And then when I went on to my PhD studies, we were, t I was lucky enough to end up in a program that looked at political violence, it looked at um, political psychology, like what is the psychology behind political violence? Why does it succeed and fail, you know, in different um, venues or environments? And, and that, when it came time to choose a topic, you know, just much like our students here choose thesis topics, I was like, you know, I, I think there are a lot of the stuff that I saw firsthand is applicable to what we study here at Washington State, and that's, that's what I chose to do. So, um, and I finished my dissertation in 2014, which is about the time where most people learned about ISIS, but certainly they've been there, been, been around for quite some time. And um, that's kept me busy and probably provided lots of opportunities for me uh, to publish and, and research um, and help, you know, either units that are deploying over there or 
um, other practitioners, United Nations or um, Interpol or just anyone who's interested in kind of combating this type of phenomenon. And, uh, and that's kind of what, what got me started. You mentioned uh, that the story of the ISIS reader kind of starts in the Trident Room. Um, how, did it de- how did it develop from there? Where did, where did you take it? Yeah, we we didn't have a, a real, yeah, I think one time, I think Herrera, I was visiting Herrera in Washington, D.C. He works at George Washington's program of extremism, and uh, we were collaborating on something else, and we got to talking, and, you know, one of the things that's frustrated us is is kind of legends and myths that have been put on this group by kind of, ca- I'd call them casual observers. And some of them are actually pretty informed observers, but they're informed in something else. And so they see what they see. And there's a lot of projection that goes on with this particular group and any group probably, or, you know, any enemy, any other, the, you, you typically you're going to see a lot of projection on that. And digging, doing research, Haro uh, is a tremendous researcher. And, you know, we've kind of like, there are a lot of myths and legends about this group that really aren't founded in, they're founded in newspaper reporting that kind of becomes legendary. And then, then, and then there's no telling anyone, well, actually, you know, the, the, the archival documents or captured documents or, you know, classified intelligence reports that have been declassified say something totally different. And so what we wanted to do was just really simply say, like, this is the group in its own words with a lot of editing. I mean, this is not an edited volume. This we about half of this is us analyzing and interpreting either through footnotes or through, you know, analysis of this is what the group is mean. This is what they're referring to, because sometimes it can be quite cryptic to outsiders. So it's been an opportunity to examine all of this primary evidence. And it's a culmination of a lot of other study and a lot of other work and a way to present it as one kind of full story, at least up through the current times. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. And that's how some people have found value in it. I mean, for, for some people, this is, it, it might be too dense. It might be too much, you know, jihadi speak, as I've heard people call it. Like, it's just mumbo jumbo about what they're trying to do ideologically or politically. Um, and so maybe in some cases it, it doesn't serve value for 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 those kind of folks, but others, um, yeah, you're right. It, it's it's all of Charlie Herrero and I's different kind of perspectives on the group, and put together, and then reflected off of what they say. And so we try to bring in a lot of other folks, a lot of other really good research, and then present it for people to kind of make their own opinions. Well. You, you said that Islamic State in Iraq had their first defeat earlier. You know, yeah. you, were, you were in Iraq or you were working on it at the time. Yep. Uh, and then in 2016, I found myself in Iraq yeah. fighting ISIS, ISIL, you know, yep. in Syria as well. Yep. So what happened between those two time frames? You know, it's, it's not, uh, we try to present through some documents what they are thinking about. Um, they are defeated. It's less of a popular defeat than people uh, and, and the United States and this is part of war so this is, um, this is not a critical comment the United States is really kind of self-congratulatory mission accomplished yeah but it, no mission one said it then I mean they learned their lesson from 2003 right but but certainly if you read 
let's say U.S. Army leaders during this time period, uh, because they were able to do something pretty successful, they're going to take the political um, benefits of victory on the battlefield, and they're going to try to extrapolate those into a, a variety of things that have nothing to do with the Islamic State. Um, you can still read military officers at the time at CENTCOM or other places saying this is still a threat, they're still there, um, we, we're managing this, but we need to do X, Y, and Z to keep this group under control. Does that have um, enough national attention? Um, you know, it, it, it did because it, the, at the time, the, but the attention was really about pulling troops out of Iraq. And that was a very, that was a political impetus that was hard to stop. And so what I think happened is, is in general that a lot of the doubts about whether the mission really was accomplished kind of got papered over in order to serve the larger political need. And again, that's what warfare is about. And so you can't really critique that. Um, you can critique the way uh, in which these things were done. Um, but even then, that's, a, that's an our perspective. What, what we try to do in this book is look at what was their perspective, right? How did they overcome defeat? And I think this is a really, this is what fascinates me about this period. And it's under-researched, it's underwritten about, and hopefully people will write about it. I'm writing about it this summer a little bit, research and writing, but I still, you know, I wrote an entire paper about it this summer and I think it's garbage, right? And, and, it's, and most people are like, that's not what happened. And I'm like, but no, nah, I really think that's what happened, right? And um, the story is yet to be told on how they were defeated, how they really critically looked at themselves and said, we messed this up, we messed this up, we messed this up, and here's, what we're, here's our strategy to overcome that. Can you give us a little preview? Uh, we talk, they have a strategy document uh, called the Fallujah Memorandum. I think it's chapter four in our book, and they go through, um, one, it's less about hearts and minds as people tend to put it it's really about political elites and who they are kind of recruiting uh, tribal elites and the tribal elites that they lost in certain cases and then other sunni political elites that were operating in rival insurgent groups they were insurgents themselves uh, but turned to fight the islamic state because they didn't really agree with uh, the overarching political program and very importantly to all of us here at nps they were, they were interested in reconciling with the government until that turned out to not be very feasibly, uh, feasible politically. And then they went back to the Islamic State. So what do you view as some of their top strengths then that we could over, try to f use to defeat them, target, if you will? Yeah, you know, we did a pretty good job. I, you, know, you, you know, your experience in 2016 um, and, you know, since... The, the United States... I mean, to use the words I would, is we were smashing the shit out of their neck. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and that's important, but it's obviously not going to be sufficient, right? What is going to be sufficient is generating a political coalition that has sustainable legs to really extinguish any opportunity that this group has to kind of surge a third time, really a third time. And... Um, you know, the U.S. did a masterful job of that. I think that's another story that has not been really different. Like, how politically does the Obama administration and later the Trump administration knit together a 79-82 state coalition to defeat this group um, in a time that's not necessarily known for, you know, multilateral or multinational military? 
efforts, not political or economic or even global warming or climate change. It's focused on defeating a non-state, wannabe state actor in the Middle East, right? But you have France, you have Belgium, you have the Netherlands, you have Australia, New Zealand, and, and you know, Jordan. You have all of these countries that are committed to doing this. And that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting story. But the question, much like the first go-round is, is it sustainable? And how do you sustain this political effort? Well, and now, you know, the political effort kind of seems to be done. You know, mm -hmm. President Trump announces yeah. in his 2019 State of the Union address, yeah, ISIS is defeated, they're done for, yeah. smashed, gone. Um, maybe, you know, he doesn't use the word gone or anything. He uses the word uh, defeated, I think. Yeah. So no, then, I think it's more like destroyed. I dest mean, okay, yeah. Um, yeah, not like the military would use defeat versus destroy right. versus decimated versus... Yeah, all these, all these doctrinal right, right, right. terminologies, right. right? It means something, right? Um, yeah, so the, the, is the U.S. now, do you think, still prepared to commit the level of resources that is required to prevent that third resurgence? Um, and I guess I asked that yeah. in light of, you know, attention. Yeah, historically, no. And the, <laughs> historically, yeah, and the national no. defense strategy yeah. and everything else were... Right. We're going to run off the great power competition. You know, China, Russia, right. you know, North Korea, Iran, right? Right. So worse, worse, and I, you know, I that is understandable. Like that, that, you know, when certain part of good grand strategy is prioritizing, right? Um, but but when you wish away the problems that really do exist, or the alligators closer to the boat, as some people call it, you know, it's it's problematic. And you know, the only people that that I can be that I'll get my feathers ruffled over people who are like, we've wasted our time the last 16 years on, you know, GWAT or, you know, fighting this group that's really insignificant. And um, we've learned all the wrong lessons from it, which is impossible to me, right? I mean, you, you have experiences and you learn from them. There's no good or bad lessons to learn or lessons that, you know, that you don't even need to worry about learning. Um, those are the only people that I, that I can get a little frustrated at, to be honest. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot for us to learn from this group uh, that will that really talk to us more about the nature, the really the character of war today, whether it's the information environment, the cyber environment, uh, the the fight against ISIS allowed the U.S. to do and its coalition partners to do really amazing things, whether it's targeting, I mean, the air power. Uh, in new innovative ways that uh, will will come will obviously come in handy uh, for future competition and conflict. Well, and let's be real; it's not like out there during our fight in ISIS we weren't also coming up against some of our other competitors. Great. named in the national defense <laughs> strategy, some right. of them were out there too, and we were <laughs> maybe sharing the same runway sometimes. Yeah, you know, like yeah. it's not like we weren't gathering other information and lessons simultaneously yeah. and they learned a lot too right and at the, right and at the same time you know trying to keep the threat of terrorism which was the primary world focus at bay for 16 years so i think you i mean that's yeah. what a, what a point you raise yeah and there is a threat otherwise i mean the europeans you know just wouldn't be very gung-ho about jumping on this coalition if they didn't see this as a threat to their own people and you know people of paris france would tell you well i mean uh, where would we be if we just thought that this was going to disappear in five years and ignore it right now? Especially after COVID. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of budgetary pressures in the future. Uh, the challenge of China is looming, uh, Russia, um, in the news this week. And um, these are all going to compete, and it's going to make it harder to do what we want to do. Mm -hmm. 
in order to do what you said, just really mitigate and manage uh, this threat. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded the 19th of August, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast.